You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Właściwie to są dzieci mojej dobrej znajomej. Będą robiły u nas chórki i striptizy. Musicie się tylko dobrze bawić, reszta pójdzie sama. Dobry wieczór bardzo szanownemu państwu. Przed państwem córki dancingu. Dwóch czterenek. Chciałam pokazać się z najlepszej strony. to the projection booth i'm your host mike white joining me once again is ms carol borden hey everybody also back with me this week is mr david rogers oh does no one speak or make telepathy (laughs) all right hello (laughs) on this special episode of the projection booth we are discussing Jessica smozaniska's 2015 film Corky Dansingu, released in the U.S. as The Lure. It's the story of two mermaids, Golden and Silver, who join the world of humans as singers at a dinner club. To say the least, they have a little trouble fitting in to the world of humans. Now, we're going to be getting into the plot, including the ending, so if you still haven't seen The Lure yet, go ahead, turn us off, come back later, we will still be here. Now, since this is a new film, I won't ask my typical when-did-you-see-this question, and rather, Carol... What did you think the first time that you watched The Lure? That murderous disco mermaids are where it's at. And I would have loved to see The Lure compete in Eurovision. David, how about yourself? What did you think when you first saw it? I was really taken by surprise. Um, I had heard of the movie. Um, I actually hadn't actually watched it until you invited me for the show. And it met any expectations you can have for a horror mermaid musical coal from poland which I've, I've had to describe this to a few people and i always say that that it is a polish mermaid mu- horror musical and people either have a blank look or they're with it <laughs> but as far as uh, what i thought of it um i really loved it um it actually it gets better with the second viewing uh, i've only had the pleasure of seeing it twice so far but um it's one i think will be rewarding with each viewing once you don't have to 
focus so much on the plot and subtitles and just let it wash over you. It's very visually beautiful. I saw this one as part of the Cinetopia Film Festival years, uh, I guess it was two years ago now. Um, it showed, or maybe it was last year, but the movie just took me by surprise. I had no real idea going in. I basically, when I talked to the, the folks from the festival, they were like, you have to see the lore. So I'm like, okay. I went down and saw it at Cinema Detroit, and I just was completely blown away i went out the next day found a copy of it on ebay it had been released in poland with english subtitles thank goodness so i was able to check that out and then as i've been going along it's like oh cool i found the ballad and romance uh, soundtrack version so i picked that up and listened to that ad nauseum and then when the movie soundtrack proper came out i Pick that up and have been listening to that. These songs get stuck in my head so easily. They're so darn catchy. And even though I have no idea what they're saying, I still have a great time kind of mock singing along to them uh, in my faux Polish, whatever I'm singing. I don't even know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, I agree, David, that this movie just gets better each time I watch it. I really uh, enjoy it. And then I pick out more things as I watch because this is a, a pretty uh, well-layered film when it comes to visual and audible uh, things as well as thematics. Yeah, mm -hmm. I hadn't really paid attention to the third woman who appears and gives them glucose or I, I don't know after they have that big fight and she gives everyone IVs. For some reason, I had thought she was the mother in my memory and when I rewatched it, there's a whole new character who's mysterious. And I also hadn't noticed the use of sea noises as much. And so when I listened to it this time, there's, there's periods where the background noise is just ocean. The sound design is, uh, especially if you have a decent surround sound, um, it does, it feels like you're kind of in the middle of the ocean at times. The visuals, the sound, everything, um, you know, it's a real, you know, director's eye, if you will. And it's amazing that this was the first feature from this director. So she had done shorts before that, but yeah, it's amazing that this was her freshman feature and here it is coming out on the criterion collection. So yeah, she's, uh, she's batting a thousand so far. So, <laughs> so not bad. She's going to have a whole lot of expectations on her on uh, that second film, I imagine. So hopefully uh, her sophomore slump isn't, isn't too bad, but I was right there with you, Carol, when it came to that uh, woman character that came in, I thought she was the mom, too, and I think it was just that kind of uh, over-processed blonde hair that the mom has. We're pretty sure, and you guys, please tell me if I'm wrong, I'm pretty sure that our three main human characters in this, they seem to be mom, dad, and son. Is that what you guys are getting out of this as well? I think so. On the second viewing, I thought more that. On my first viewing, I wasn't sure, but they certainly seem to be some kind of chosen family. Like they have a familial relationship, but I wasn't sure if it's they've ended up together or they're biologically related. In the second viewing, I mean, yes, there is a sense of family, but I got the impression that the the older two were just a couple. I don't know if they were married or not. And the third one was just a member of their band that hangs around a lot and is their surrogate son. And that's more the impression I got. It's almost easier to um, to think of them as not related because there's one, one once 
uh, silver and golden come into the picture, it almost becomes this weird incestuous relationship because those two are kind of adopted like daughters. But so silver is really attracted to the son or the young man in the band. And then the father seems to be having sex with one, if not both of them, especially there's a part where he's having sex with his wife and she's just like, why do you smell like fish? And he's like, Oh, I just ate herring. She also asks him because she's having a vision while she's having sex with him of the mermaids, both nursing from her. And it, it's yes. hard. It's like this fusing of maternal and sexual imagery at the same time with her. So I wasn't sure if he was actually having that or having sex with one of the mermaids himself or if she was just having this reaction because of her own fantasy. The way that he shows off the mermaids' talents and tales and sexual organs to his boss, he definitely seems very familiar with them, let's say. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I certainly thought he was attracted to them. It was more a question of whether Golden was attracted to him at all. It's really smart that they have these two female characters. You know, this goes beyond the Little Mermaid, and we'll be talking about that, and and kind of the the Hans Christian Andersen as well as some of the adaptations. But this goes beyond that. That we have these two girls, so we get to see both of their experiences out in the world rather than just once, and we kind of get the flip side from one to the other with both of these girls because one is let's say more earthy and the other one is more ethereal so silver is falls in love with the son the young man from the band and is uh, very into him and we kind of get our traditional splash little mermaid type story of this quasi love story happening and then you have Golden on the other side of it, where she can't really break from the sea. She um, murders someone pretty early in the proceedings so that she can eat his heart. Because even from the very beginning, when we first see these two mermaids show up, when we have the, the band kind of hanging around the beach and they're getting drunk and playing songs, and they come up out of the water and it's just like, hey, uh you know, come out to us, we won't eat you. <laughs> so there's already this danger of them eating people, and that just kind of plays throughout because you these are wild creatures. We don't know uh, what they're going to do. And Golden, you never really know what she's going to do and really what's going on in her head. They're they're very much adolescent. I mean, at some point, the the mother, for lack of a better term, um, said, "You know, you two are nippers." You don't know much yet, or um, it feels like this is a movie full of ideas that it uses the Little Mermaid as a jumping board. But it also feels very much like some of the best, um, not not necessarily coming of age, but like you know, becoming a woman, or you you know, like think of um, you know something like Ginger Snaps, where you set a a horror movie, but it has the themes of you know becoming a woman, having your first period, and you know things like that, and it feels very much. There's some of that going on here, although not being a, a real female woman, they're not going to have to deal with that thing. But, uh, you know, it feels like that. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. It felt like there was a bit of that going on there, too. I think there was a lot of that. And I think one of the things that I don't want to say painful, but one of the things that can make 
the film emotionally difficult is that Smozinska captures the intensity of teenage love and particularly teenage girl love so that only it's horribly tragic because Silver falls in love with the first doofy dude she meets. She's willing to have her legs cut off and ultimately die for love for first dude. Well, yes, and I I totally agree with you there. While I can't bring the perspective of a young girl to it, but I mean, mm-hmm. I think just a young person in love for that first time in general can see something in there of themselves. I mean that. Um, we, I mean, we'll talk about the ending later, but in that that ending for anybody who's had any kind of heartbreak, we'll just call it. I think can relate, <laughs> although sure. not not to the degree she had to. Yeah, well, then when you're an older person, you're like really. Really? <laughs> yes. You're going to have the surgery, really, for him. Yeah. Or for that person, the first person. The whole idea of these girls and the way that their bodies change, like literally change, the, w- the way that it's not necessarily a are you there, God, it's me, Margaret type of change, but it's definitely a metamorphosis. And we are speaking to that quite a bit throughout this. And after she does get her legs, after she, because this isn't, there's no witch or uh, curse or anything that happens in this. It is, you get a surgery to have your legs, your tail removed and legs put on. And I always wonder, like, if there's going to be a sequel at some point to to focus on the girl who got the tail. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I wondered about her, too. Yeah. She was happy. (laughs) And then she loses her voice just period it's not one of these like you know that that uh when she goes back to the sea she's going to get her voice back or anything no that's it you lose your your tail you lose your voice she gets the legs and then she ends up having sex with as you so eloquently put this doofy dude and then it's interesting because he pulls back in revulsion and there's a lot of like well, is it because the wound that that she has, because she's sewn together, and they didn't even find a woman to donate her legs who is of the same skin color, which is fantastic. But is it because the wound is bleeding, or was this bottom half a virgin? So in the look on his face, I'm not really sure, because this character, he doesn't really speak very much. He, he speaks just barely more than golden after she gets her legs removed the first time i thought it was her wound so this time i watched more closely and she doesn't have any she's not bleeding from her incision but i actually think she got her period and that's why he pulled back because that amount of blood is a lot of blood for anyone who might be having you know sex for the first time thank you yeah that was the third distinct possibility that i just did not go to so thank you you're welcome i I did I didn't catch that because I, I, I was looking for that, too, and it appeared that it was more on his stomach where the wound was. But now now you got me thinking. i got to go back and watch that again to really pay attention to where it was. <laughs> and pay attention to relative torso lengths. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he might have been having sex with her belly button. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, well, you know, he could ask Tommy Wiseau about that. He's the expert. I mean, even when it comes to when they are – when they have their – their mermaid tails, their sex organs seem to be way far away from their body. So I just keep picturing the boss uh, of the band or the manager at the club, I should say, him having sex with these girls. But like he's 
about 10 feet away it looks like because <laughs> because these aren't like the cute oh. little like daryl hannah kind of tales or what you see like you know and i don't know bubble guppies or any of those kind of stupid shows these are eel-like tails and they're just amazing it's it they're the a type of mermaid i've never really even seen they're, they look even cooler than like the mermaids uh in the harry potter films i did i wasn't sure about going on this tangent but this time watching it i thought a lot of about Choi Hawk's uh, green snake and the relationship of the sisters, like the one sister who's really interested in being human and the other sister who doesn't quite make it and isn't so interested in being human. But their tales reminded me a lot of that. Silver at one point is like, hey, let's stick around for a little bit and then we can swim to America. And that just seems to be like her thing. You know, it's not, She's and there it's, for fun. Yeah, exactly. She just wants to have some fun, eat some hearts, and then go on her merry way. <laughs> Sing with Triton. You're right about the the tales, which is funny because when I was watching it, I just kind of accepted it. I didn't, you know, I thought, eh. But my wife, you know, was pop, popped in at one point when uh, when I was watching it. She said, "What the fuck is wrong with their tails? Or they look ugly?" You know, <laughs> as as a woman who grew up watching Little Mermaid, she just wasn't didn't mm-hmm. expect to see a tail like that. You know, the other thing I was just thinking of, uh, you know, you mentioned the placement of the the hole, for lack of a better term. You know, and how you ha- you if you're gonna have sex with them, you're gonna be pretty far away. But that almost seems like, in their mermaid form, it, it has a lot to say about them being um, objects rather than real real things to everyone else. I mean, even it, to have sex with them, there's no real intimacy because you can't face to face or anything. And you know, that's a lot of that that has a lot to say with them in general. I mean, they're used as a, a singing act, but they're not paid. You know, no, you know, they they are just tools to everyone around them. Yeah, they're pimped out right away by, for lack of a better term, the father, his boss. They are treated like such objects. I think that's really indicative by that scene of them in the bunny ears where they're trying to act sexy and they're getting their pictures taken and, you know, they're like rubbing each other's tails and all that. And at that point, I was just like, are they really in their fish form or are they in their human form and they have fake tails on because you know you can do that kind of thing because they just they're so blasé at that point and yeah they're just being objectified completely by that time and and i'm always amazed though that watching this film they do a mermaid act it's amazing there's a, a, a fantastic uh, moment where they get into a giant martini glass and turn into their mermaid forms on stage and i'm just like i would think they would be a much bigger act i would think they would grow out of that venue very very quickly but i also kind of like that they don't grow out of the venue that they are kind of stuck at this dinner club throughout the entire film that they never really get big no matter how amazing they are they're stuck there because silver is stuck there and because they're mermaids. So they don't think about things like, you know, if we keep this up, we'll end up on Eurovision. They're just like, Oh, well, this is what we're doing for now till we swim to America. Well, yeah. Had you been their manager, they would be right there <laughs> in the Eurovision contest. <laughs> I'd rake in the bucks. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Triton. He was a very surprising character to me. I didn't really expect him to show up. And the first time I saw this movie, I wasn't really sure what his deal was. I mean, because he comes out and he says, I am a a fellow creature of the sea and I have horns under my skin. And when he shows like 
this horn got caught by a fisherman and I pulled this horn out myself. And I'm just like, well, is he lying to us? Because I, it just looks like he's got these big scars on his head. And I was like, well, maybe he's into like ritual scarification and all this kind of stuff. He's one of these like modern primitives, but it wasn't until, well, it wasn't until his concert where he forms what little hair he has left into this kind of, faux hawk slash fin that's on the top of his head and then when he bites the head off of it is it a pigeon he bites the head off of and his eyes turn completely black which is the same thing that happens when silver and golden kind of are in their mermaid forms yeah i had actually taken him at face value so that's interesting yeah i I didn't question that i um i I guess i never thought of the scarification angle i just thought yeah well that makes sense (laughs) I had wondered why he did it. Like he clearly, I, I mean, the, the most obvious answer is he did it so he could have a band and fit in. But right. he doesn't seem to be driven like Silver is to, you know, like the same kind of self-loathing that she has going and the same desire to please. So that he went to such an extremity. I don't know, maybe he is some sort of C version of someone who's into scarification. With this type of movie, which is, it just presents it to you. It doesn't, with with little exception of uh, Triton explaining some of the rules. You know, you lose your tail, you lose your voice. Other than that, there's really no explanation. We just accept everything at face value. There's mermaids. Where do they come from? Well, the, the ocean. You know, oh, and they sing. Wonderful. <laughs> you know, they have a nightclub act. You know, so it wasn't that far after we've been through this journey with them. It just didn't seem that out of place. Like, all right, I buy it. He, he's from the sea as well. You know, it, it felt very much that scene felt... Um, you have to forgive me because I saw the Nicolas Cage version first, but uh, it, it did feel very much like uh, City of Angels where, you know, Dennis Franz and um, Nick Cage have that moment where, like, they recognize each other for who they are. And, and that, I mean, although we already know that they're mermaids, you know, front center, but uh, that felt very much like a, a meeting of people who understand one another. I wondered about that bar, t- too. That was an interesting bar, and the way that she says all the fiends are out or something, I was like, hmm, okay. And that, to your point from earlier, the sound design of that, that there's all these waves that I'm hearing as they're in that bar, it was kind of neat. And she says to one of the patrons who we never see again, I think we never see him again, I know you're looking for a tail. And it's a nice play, because obviously there's the sexual overtones, but she's literally looking to get rid of her tail. You mentioned the uh, the glucose scene earlier, and yeah, I kept thinking heroin, even though they're singing about glucose. I love that scene, and comparing it to the earlier scene when Golden gets up at night and is walking through the house, and everyone seems to be still, except for Silver is the only other one who seems to be kind of awake, and the rest of them are just kind of in these tableaus as it were and her going through the house and taking this all in and singing this song was just remarkable and then the glucose scene is kind of similar with the one woman coming in and hooking everybody up to these ivs walking through the house again and almost following the same path i mean that house is very very central or apartment probably it's very very central to so much of the the action of the film there's like the apartment and the club and 
that's about it for so much of it. Occasionally, other locations present themselves, but I would say the majority of the film take place in those two locations. Like, not to get too discursive, because the nice thing about this movie is it is so ambiguous, and there's so many things to think about it. But the first time I watched it, I just took it those things at face value as, okay, these are musical conventions. And I don't think, like, I didn't even think that clearly about it. I just, like, literally accepted what I was looking at. And this time I was wondering more about, is this an effect of their singing? But now I'm starting to think about it as those two moments in particular are almost about how they see the human world. So there's all this other stuff that's going on with how they're performing and people are trying to take advantage of them. And even in the scene you're talking about earlier with them being sexy in the martinis and wearing the bunny ears, in that scene, they're fighting with each other. Like they're sort of ignoring all the human things and having a fight about falling in love with, I think it's Mitak, the bass player. And so now I'm like, are these sort of blued out scenes that their experience and what they really feel like is real, or at least what Golden feels like is real in the world, as opposed to all this other sort of flash holiday fun? Talking about the music. Like I said earlier, the music is fantastic, but it took me a while to realize just how smart the music is and that we have a few themes that come back like a like a real musical. I mean, we're, we're spoiled by good musicals we, where we have kind of the, the same themes coming back, playing in different keys, playing in different moments, having different overtones to them as we're hearing them presented by different characters or in different scenes, which is what real good musicals do i mean there's a reason why like andrew lloyd weber is so so damn rich uh, you know and it's not just like oh let's throw a bunch of songs on the soundtrack and see what sticks and occasionally you know it, we'll get a hit out of it or something i haven't heard a soundtrack as good as this since like hedwig and the angry inch you know and and just i think that this is really well put together and it's really kind of neat that there are the two versions of the soundtrack so you can hear kind of more the original ballad and, and romance uh the the two singers that we see in the, this wedding scene that we're going to be talking about we have them doing their versions of it versus the movie versions and just the way that uh we have the two voices versus the multiple voices it's really kind of a neat way to compare the same songs from multiple perspectives and they hold up whether it's sung by two people or whether it's sold by, uh, sung by multiple characters, these songs are strong enough to really bear the weight of, of either arrangement. Yeah, I wish I, I spoke Polish so I could sing effectively. Well, now I feel stupid because they only listen to the um, to the soundtrack version. I know you said there was two, but when I heard the first track, I'm like, this is the same. <laughs> so I just listened to the soundtrack version. But I will say, uh, having listened to it today while working, you know, I sitting in front of a computer, it, you know, some of the songs are very energetic and whether you know the lyrics or not, cause I don't speak Polish either. You know, you do feel that, that love, even though I can't understand the words uh, without subtitles, you know, you do hear that love, that love ballad just tells you everything you need to know. There's language of sound and tone, you know, it, it tells me everything I need to know. And that, that I can't think of the t- title right now, but that, that love song between, uh, golden or uh, excuse me silver and Mitek. that's just a beautiful song i mean whether you know the lyrics or not but i will say the, the greatest thing about this movie is that it's got something for nearly every music taste i mean you've got some funky disco you've got mu- movie musical i mean you know like myself I'm, I'm more of a you know metal punk kid and you know you've even got some of that in there and i like that it's uh 
you know, it's it's not a singular style of music, which is really great. That song that they sing when they're at the, I'm guessing it's like a mall, and it becomes the only like really full-fledged musical, we're in a musical type number where everybody's dancing, and you get that amazing guy in the elevator who's doing that funky stuff with his hands and stuff. After we got to that point in the movie, I was just like, wow, is this how the rest of the movie is going to be? Are people going to be spontaneously dancing in the halls? And I was kind of glad that we didn't, that it was just like, there's this one moment, and then we kind of pare it back down, and we go back into the rest of this. But it's amazing that it fits. It doesn't stick out like a sore thumb. We're not just like, well, what happened in that movie? That's a movie I wanted to see. Or what happened in that? That that scene was terrible. It just it plays and it works. And it kind of, again, to your point, Carol, it kind of expresses what their excitement is about being in the world. And then that's kind of like, uh, and then we're going to go back to the day-to-day drudgery of what it is to be these nightclub singers. It goes back to what David was saying, that there's, there's something thing for everybody's taste and i think that's sort of true of the movie as a whole it's like a full spectrum movie it has all kinds of things going on and i guess as long as you don't as long as you're not hostile to fantastic elements in your movies there's going to be something happening in this movie that you will enjoy this is a movie i might feel safe saying to people that i know like musicals like i think you're really going to enjoy this as long as you can deal with subtitles um you know it's not everybody does uh you know for people who like you know my my horror friends you know if you want to see a decent horror movie that i'm sure you cannot say you've seen anything like this here you go or if you like fairy tales i mean it's it's all there and it and it works beautifully it should not you can, you know it doesn't seem like you should say well i'm gonna mix a horror movie uh the little mermaid and uh you know a musical it shouldn't work and yet it it, it does <laughs> Well, and then I think we're at an advantage, too, that it is all in Polish. So we almost gain something in the translation that it's it's a little bit, well, it's very foreign to us. It's foreign to our ears. So we're probably not judging it as harshly as something like, say, La La Land, where it's just like, wow, these songs are terrible. I really can't ever see myself singing them. I, I saw La La Land. I thought it was fine, but I was like, "Why the phenomenon?" It's I, none of the songs were catchy. I just I couldn't get myself to see it. It's it's not bad. It's just it wasn't worth the hype. That opening scene just turned me off. I was like, "Wow, this just sounds like a bunch of garbage." It didn't really sound like a song whatsoever. But maybe I'm just being harsh. I mean, I'm also the guy who decries that horrible repo, a genetic opera, because I'm just like, this isn't musical. This just sounds like people kind of trying to do opera and not doing it well. Just enough of me shitting on stuff. The end of this movie, that's the Gigi Allen story. The end of this movie is the only reason why I wouldn't put this in and just watch this movie all the time, because it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. And no matter how much we might be laughing about, oh, this is a Polish musical with mermaids and horror elements, it really pulls on my heartstrings every single time I see it. Because we know we're headed to a bad place, and you get to that point, and it's just, man, man, do I, I can't say I tear up, but I definitely feel pretty bad after watching this each time. Yeah. Absolutely. It's painful. You know, well, I I told you, Mike, uh, you know, uh, uh, I wrote you right after I had watched it. And I, I said 
said something to the effect of, I can't believe I'm admitting this, but I actually got choked up by the end of this movie. Right, right. Yeah, because yeah. you do go on an emotional journey. And, you know, and I and I will say this, and um, I, I don't have her name handy, and nor could I pronounce it if I did. Uh, but the actress who plays... Uh, Silver, I, I will not be surprised if she gets a, you know, um, who's the it girl of the moment, Alicia Vikander, if she gets that kind of career over here in the States, because just just that scene, that beautiful shot of her holding uh, me tech and, and she has this pain and anger on her face. She's ready to just kill him. And then you just her face transitions. And it's not just the the the, the effects of the the black going out of her eyes and becoming normal. I mean. You could see the emotion change on her face from anger to heartbreak. Lo- heartbreak and love. Like she loves him too much to take, take care of him like she should or, you know, kill him. And, you know, for anybody, you know, like I mentioned it earlier, I mean, boy or girl, I mean, everybody's had their first heartbreak and, and we we just saw hers and being wordless. I mean, everything is on her her face. And I, I knew everything that was going on because I think I think it's safe to say that everybody He's been there at least once in their life, had that heartbreak that you had to let go, but you didn't want to. And uh, thankfully, we didn't pay the price that she pays for the heartbreak. <laughs> we are not seafoam right now. But you feel like that when you have that heartbreak. You feel, as uh, as the song goes, lower than dirt. I mean, it is just, and yeah, it does bring back some, some bad memories. And just, you can empathize with this character that you might not have thought you would have been able to empathize with as much. But again, that's the smart thing is that we're following her story and we're following her sister's story at the same time. So we get to see both of those. And then we also kind of get uh, a little bit of proper closure when it comes to you know uh, the other sister ripping his throat out and it's like okay fantastic thank you yeah well i also appreciated like um golden played most consistently monstrous she had her nice little moment looking at her sister and realizing what was going to happen that she was going to lose her sister and that was really nice too and really well done before she she avenged us all it's a near perfect ending. I mean, like I said, just that one, that simple, beautiful shot of just him holding her and then it turns around and, you know, I mean, it's a simple effect, but effective nonetheless of just, uh, you know, just seeing her turn into sea foam. And yeah, I guess, you know, I second Mike, it doesn't quite bring me to tears, but if you don't have a lump in your throat, I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> yeah. All right. We're going to take a break and play an interview with John Athanasan, the marketing PR manager from Wikiwatchy Springs State Park down in Florida. And we will also hear an interview with Cindy, a real life mermaid. So stay tuned for that after these brief messages. Do you ever wonder when Spider-Man goes to the bathroom if the toilet paper sticks to his fingers? Do you ever wonder why Superman wears his underwear outside of his pants? My name is Imran. My name is Anthony. He's the jock! And he's the nerd. And we're your hosts for the Jock and Nerd Podcast, where we sometimes try to attempt to answer these questions. This is a full spoiler podcast, and we swear a lot. Check it out for awesome geek news, interviews, and comic book reviews. Visit jockandnerd.com. We are your superhero TV, movies, and comic book culture curators. Boom. Jockandnerd.com. Jockandnerd! Well, Eric, would you say that we're just two dudes who love talking about movies over at the Culture Cast? I mean, yeah. I don't know if dudes is the correct nomenclature, though. <laughs> dudes, bros. Okay, what about movie nerds? No. Okay. Uh, dudes is fine. 
not nerds. Anything but movie nerds. Well, over here at the Culture Cast, we talk about new movies, overlooked gems, classics, and some films that cause us to question our sanity twice a week. Yeah, Hot to Trot comes to mind for sure. Yeah, Hot to Trot was a real mess. So make sure to check out the Culture Cast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and wherever you get your podcasts. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. How did you start to work with Wikiwachi? I've been here 15 years now, and I grew up in Florida. I'm a native Floridian. Grew up not too far from here, about an hour away. And my grandparents lived in a little town called Tarpon Springs near Tampa. And uh, when we would go to visit them, Wikiwachi was always on the way. And I came here when I was a little boy and really had such a fondness for this park and, and, and of course, a lot of some of the older roadside attractions that are no longer here. I started my career out at Universal in Orlando, and a friend of mine was the manager here, and the park was really going downhill quick. I mean, it, you know, this year's our 70th anniversary, and it was showing its age, and it, had a, it needed a lot of work. And so he had asked me to come spend some time here and help him bring the park back to what it used to be. And I really, at the time, was hesitant to do it because I felt like, okay, I'm going from a universal type of park down to Wikiwachi, and although I still had a love for it, but I had uh, a great respect for him, and he was a mentor of mine throughout my career. And I said, okay, you know, come and give you six months, and six months turned into 15 years, and it's been the best 15 years from a work standpoint that I've ever. I can't think of another place that'd rather work. You know, I get a, I get a chance to come every day and work at a place that I still relive childhood memories, and it's um, and the people here are wonderful, and, and it's and it's important to me to be a part of uh, something that really represents old Florida, that old kitsch, and and of course we we've got a show that 
no one in the world will ever be able to duplicate uh, here at Wikiwachi. So it's uh, and, if, and 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 with as small as a staff as we have, I have the opportunity to be more creative, if you will, in my marketing and and PR stuff. Whereas if I were at a larger park, it would be I don't want to say I'd be just a number, but I probably wouldn't have as much leeway to be as creative uh, when I do things. So yeah, you know, having a great time and I love it here. How did the Mermaid Show come about? Well, the Mermaid Show has been around, as I mentioned, for um, about seven. This is going to be our 70th year on October 13th. And in the early 40s, there was a gentleman by the name of Newton Perry who had this vision. He was an avid swimmer. He was an avid diver as well. And he used to train Navy frogmen at the time, they called them, which is now it's kind of evolved to Navy SEALs. And he had this vision of taking synchronized swimming, which I think we're all kind of used to seeing, like Esther Williams and the beautiful choreography that they used to do on the surface of the water. But he wanted to do that underwater. And so when he was scouting for a location, he came across this. I always like to say it's a beautiful spring, but it wasn't that when he discovered it in the mid-40s because it had turned into a dump site for the locals. You know, they, He had found vehicles at the bottom of it, just garbage. And after he cleaned it up, it was just this beautiful first-magnitude spring, and it just so happened to be right next to uh, US-19, which at that time was one of the main thoroughfares in Florida. You know, now you have I-75, I-4, I-10. You know, there's a lot of interstates that people connect um, with when they come to travel in Florida. But back then, it was just US-19. So it was the perfect location for him because Florida is no different now than it was then. It was still a popular vacation destination. The sun, the beaches, um, and people wanted to, to visit. And so when he opened the doors in 1947, he had developed this underwater breathing apparatus, which we still use to this day, which is a self-regulated air hose. So that way the mermaids or the underwater performers are not, um, they don't have a lot of the regulators or scuba equipment that you would see on most divers now. And um, so when he opened the doors, they didn't have mermaid tails at at the time. Uh, they were just beautiful young women performing underwater ballet, and he had recruited uh, some synchronized swimmers from the St. Petersburg area called the Aquabells to put on this show. And it's it since evolved in the mid-60s, then the girls started to wear tails, but they were always called mermaids, even since 1947. And so his vision to, to have underwater performers as mermaids um, became a reality, and he built a at that time, a 22-seat theater, and embedded it into the spring. And that lasted till about the mid-50s until ABC. He sold the park to ABC, the network, and they took out that theater and put in the theater that we have today, which is a 400-seat theater. And, and the reason why I say we're so unique and that we're the only show like it in the world is because no one will ever be able to duplicate the theater that we have today. We've got this 400-seat theater that is submerged into a first-magnitude spring. So because of the environmental laws that are now in place, no one will, will ever be able to duplicate that. So that's what keeps us unique, and we're pretty proud of that, that uniqueness. It's really magic. It's twofold. You know, People say, well, why do you think the mermaids still exist when a lot of other roadside attractions disappeared? It, it really is a combination of these beautiful women performing beautiful underwater ballet, 
but also when you throw in this first magnitude spring, which is breathtaking in its own right, it really creates that magic. So it's one of the few, if not the only place anywhere, that when visitors come to see the mermaids perform, they walk down into the theater and they are seated approximately 15 to 16 feet below the surface of the water. And then in front of them are these mermaids performing. So it really is a remarkable um, attraction. What did ABC bring to the table? Well, I think you know ABC played a really big role. I mean, they had you know, of course, it's ABC, so they brought notoriety, they brought fame to the park. Movie stars from Elvis Presley to Don Knotts to Arthur Godfrey, John Davidson. I mean, you name it, they came to visit. It brought that notoriety, and the mermaids at that point became world renowned. Women from all over the world wanted to be one of the world famous Wikiwachi mermaids. You know, they had the premiere for Mr. Peabody and the, and the Mermaid with Don Knotts was, was here, the first ever underwater premiere ever done. So ABC really played an important role in putting Wikiwachi on the map. And I say that even literally because um, in 1966, ABC, when they owned the park, they really wanted to put Wikiwachi on the map. So they inco- there's one square mile of city that they incorporated at, in that year. And so we are one of America's tiniest cities. Uh, we have a population, and it fluctuates, but it runs anywhere from 9 to 12 people. So when someone moves out or someone moves in, it's a big population boom or decline here at the park. We actually have a, mer- uh, a mayor who used to be a mermaid. And so when we tout ourselves as a city of live mermaids, we, we meet it. Would I be remembering correctly, like maybe I saw Wikiwachi being uh, showcased on like That's Incredible or Real People or some of those shows from the 70s? I'm not familiar with those shows, but there uh, there was a show called, and it's been redone, but to tell the truth, um, that was done, I think we were on that, in fact our, our mayor was, um, I want to say the maybe the 90s, maybe late 80s, I'm not really sure. But um, it's possible. I, I just don't know of it. And do you ever uh, strap on the, the scuba gear and take a dive? I was actually scuba certified here. You know, and every time I go on camera to talk about what the girls go through, uh, the airlock underneath, um, what they see, I wanted to see it firsthand. And so I had the opportunity to become scuba certified, and, and I did it here. And that's, that's one of the first things that we do. In fact, the first thing that we do when we hire a new mermaid is uh, we get them scuba certified. So I just happened to jump in on one of the classes and got my chance to go down and, and see what they saw and, and uh, had a great time doing it. It's, it's truly a remarkable spring. It's something that's absolutely beautiful. It's, it's one of the – we're not the only first magnitude spring in Florida, but to me it's my favorite. Of course, I'm biased because I work here, but um, I have such a love for this spring. And, and the mermaids will tell you, no matter who you speak with, once they jump in that spring and they perform, it's something that they'll never, ever forget. And they miss it when they leave. Tell me about the hiring process and who are the types of people that you look for to hire as a mermaid? Well, you know, it's like any performance. Uh, we do go through an audition process. It's kind of um, twofold. We actually have, when we hold an open audition, uh, usually we'll have about 50, 60 young ladies come and uh, try out. And we're, one of the main, you know, safety is our number one priority. So what we're always looking for is how comfortable and how strong of a swimmer you are. You know, that can mean the difference between life and death. You know, we're not going to put anyone, uh, hire anyone in a position where they're 
where they may panic or be uncomfortable, that's not going to do them any good, nor someone who may be swimming next to them uh, that they may need to rescue. You know, this is an inherently dangerous job. They are breathing compressed air underwater, and they, um, they're about 20 to 30 feet underwater. So they need to know all the rules and regulations of diving safely. So the first thing that we put these women through, they do a 400-yard swim. It is timed, and that will typically knock out about 70% of them, typically. Um, if they do pass that, um, then they'll go to an underwater, um, you know, we sit in the theater and, and we ask them to perform simple underwater ballet maneuvers. And what we're looking for, and it's never how, you know, oh, she's pretty, you know, looks have really nothing to do with it. It's always about how do you, how do you look underwater? And I mentioned that earlier. So that's what we're looking for. So when we ask them to do a, what we call a dolphin or a backflip, if you will, how do they look? Are they doing it with ease? Uh, they don't have to do it perfectly. It doesn't have to be technically sound. But where we're looking to see how comfortable are they when they do some of these underwater ballet moves. And then if, if they pass that part, then we go to the traditional sit-down across from each other interview that you would have at any other job. And to me, that's the most important part, at least from my standpoint, because I want to make sure that these young women know what, what, it's, what it takes to be a Wikiwachi mermaid, the brand that they're going to represent. You know, how do they speak in front of a camera? Are they articulate? Um, so because you know, they, they are looked up to by many young kids, and I mentioned earlier that there's a program that we have called Tail Mail where uh, kids write to them. They get fan mail every day. And so for me, not one part of the audition process is more important than the other, but I'm more focused. In my position, I'm more focused on the, um, the sit-down interview as opposed to where our underwater theater manager may be obviously more interested in how she does underwater. So it's, you know, out of 50 or 60 women, uh, we may, may get maybe two that are eligible to figure out. But the only requirement that we uh, ask is that you're at least 18 years of age. That's pretty much it. I don't imagine that ABC owns the park anymore. Can you tell me how it transitioned into what it is today? Well, we are now uh, proudly a state park. So we are one of 170-plus uh, Florida state parks, and we became a state park in November 2008. been a great opportunity for us, and we're very thankful to be a part of this bigger family um, because Florida State Parks has such a rich tradition of excellence, um, and, and the resources that that we have now as part of that um, will will ensure that this park remains for many more generations to come. Um, so we're very thankful to be a part of that. It did change hands uh, quite a few times between ABC and 2008 when we became a state park. We're just, like I said, very fortunate to be one of. Um, be a part of the Florida State Park system. You were working for Wikiwachi at the time when you guys became a state park? I was, yes. I was, uh, when I started here, it was private, and I was part of the team that helped transition it to a state park. And it's been the best thing that could have ever happened, not only to the park, but to the employees as well. It was really a godsend to this park. So the transition, you know, other than, you know, having a, you know, because when we were private, there was no kind of parent company so to speak. And uh, so really the only transition or change, and it's not even a big change at all, actually we welcome it, is the fact that we've got, uh, we are part of this family. So we want to make sure that, you know, Wikiwachi has its own message, 
we, but we are also part of the Florida State Park System that also has an important message. You know, it, it maybe took a few weeks to kind of get accustomed to what that message was and is and, and how we now correlate. You know, we're not your typical state park that you would see because we have mermaids, but we do have, it is a natural resource. You know, the spring is a natural resource and we have surrounding the spring, we've got scrub habitat. We do have the ability for people to kayak and stand up paddleboard on the river. So a lot of the recreational activities that you see typically at a state park, uh, you find here, you know, here as well. So it was an easy transition for uh, the employees and for us as well. Well, I imagine that as a Florida State Park, you have to really hammer home a message of conservation because Florida is such a great natural resource. It is, and, 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 and that's part of what we try to do. We do have a riverboat cruise where you know, we do implement the conservation part of it, the environmental aspect of it. Our wildlife show is, is run by park rangers who uh, talk about native species in Florida, whether they're alligators or snakes or other reptiles, and bring them out and let people get up close and personal with them and, and dispel any myths that they may have and why it's so important to maintain these creatures' habitats and, and why they're so important to the ecology of the, of the state. And then, of course, with the spring, anytime we have an opportunity to promote the wellness of it, uh, because a lot of the springs here in Florida have uh, become inundated with what we call limbia or algae, because of the urban sprawl that the state has experienced over decades, you know, people love to retire here. So millions of people are moving to Florida, and, and that's causing a, an impact, an environmental impact on not just this spring, but many springs uh, or environmental sensitive uh, areas throughout Florida. And so we want to make sure that we educate the general public about why protecting these springs are so important. And, uh, and so we try to implement that message uh, along with what we do here. Do you have any idea how many mermaids you've had over the years since the Parks Foundation? And it's very difficult for me. In the 15 years that I've been here, and I'm just trying to start small and go big, how many, how many mermaids? Um, you know, I've probably come across maybe 50, some just in the 15 years that I've been here. But there used to be many, many more back in what they call the heyday of Wikiwaki. So I'm, you know, I've got to say it's gonna, it has to be in the thousands, has to be. I mean, 70 years of of mermaids, and and back in those days, they used to do like nine shows a day, had maybe 50 women on staff. So it, it's it's very difficult to me to put a precise number on that, but it's got to be in the, in the thousands. Since your tenure there, I'm curious, what is kind of the life expectancy? I think that's a bad term, but life expectancy of a mermaid. Yeah, exactly. I thought when I first started working here, I thought the turnover was going to be high, but I was completely wrong. Um, I would see you know, the majority of our mermaids, the majority of them, um, are college students. You know, they're here to find a job other than waitressing, you know, or waiting tables, a, a fun job. And especially if they grew up here locally, um, this is something that they've always wanted to do since they were little girls. And so I would say it's about three to four years is about the average length of time that a girl stays. You have to understand that there's a lot of time invested uh, in any performer on both sides. Um, by the time we, just to give you a quick example, if we hire a girl today, it probably won't be until like four to six months before she even swims a show. 
one part of a show because of the fact that they have to scuba certify them. We have to then air host train them. Then they have to learn the choreography to the show. So uh, when we hire someone, they need to be patient, and there's a lot of training involved. You know, again, safety is our number one priority. So we want to make they – get, they get a lot of water time, of course, but it's not until four to six months. Some go quicker than others. Some are faster learners than others. Ultimately, they all get to the same goal, but it's about four to six months. When they see that that much time has been invested in, and, and they've made such strong connections and friendships with um, the, the other young women who, who work with, alongside them, uh, they don't want to go. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those – I can't begin to even tell you, and Cindy could probably speak to it more, but the friendships and, and, and the, the, the relationships they've built with each other remain for life. Uh, it's not like every any other job that you maybe worked at where you, you're kind of friends or even acquaintances with your coworkers, and then once you leave that place of employment, you almost say forget about them, but you lose touch. Not these girls. I mean, they. I've seen it. I've been here long enough to see young women start out at you know at 18 years old, and I've seen them graduate. I've seen them get married, and I've seen them have kids. But one thing has always remained constant. They've never forgotten this place, and they've never forgotten the coworkers that they've had. And they still remain friends. They still come by, and, and they all go out together and have dinner or go to each other's homes and go to each other's weddings and or their baby showers. And, and so it's um, that's one of the most – that was one of, probably one of the biggest things that surprised me when I first started working here and as my time went on was to see how close these young women stay with each other. How did you decide that you wanted to be a mermaid? I came to the park. Uh, I lived about a county over, but I came with my family, and I saw the mermaid show, and I didn't even notice the air hoses. I just was, like, mesmerized. Like, I just thought they were these beautiful women, and they're swimming. And I'm, like, thinking, how are they holding their breath all this time? <laughs> you just don't think about all that, the details, but um, I just loved it, and then I actually moved to this county and I was in high school and I had a friend um, my senior year who had tried out and she made it and I thought oh my gosh I'm going I'm going right now I'm like I left that day after school and came here and found out the information and I was really blessed to get hired. Were you a big swimmer growing up? No I was not I didn't do sports um, I didn't take swimming of course I always grew up in the water living here in Florida um, but it was it was intimidating when I first, when I tried out and I got in the spring, you don't realize how big it is and it's cold and it's clear water and, it, you know, it just, uh, it was a lot more than I just, I thought when I first got in. But What was your uh, tryout experience like? It was a lot, it, like what John said, it hasn't changed throughout the years. Um, tried out with a bunch of different girls, you had to swim, you had to do, um, and I didn't know what ballet was nevertheless like doing it underwater you know so you just kind of wing it and go for it and um 
you know, I just remember I did the water part, I did the interview, and I was kind of shy in high school, too, so I was very nervous. And that's one of the good things about working here. It taught me how to come out of my shell and, you know, have fun. <laughs> so, But I remember when I tried out, it was, it, I was petrified. I waited by the phone for that call, <laughs> like, every day. It was great, though. How long does it take between when you uh, get the job and then you actually get to put on the fins? You have, like you said, you got to be scuba certified. And then before you even get the idea of putting on a tail, you have to breathe underwater on the air hose. You have to feel completely comfortable in your surroundings. You have to, and it sounds, you know, odd, but you have to learn how to sing underwater. You have to learn to stay underwater, you know, learn how to do your buoyancy. You don't wear any weights. It's all breath control. Basic things like your posture and you're always smiling, those kind of things. So it takes quite a while. Then you learn the choreography on land. Then you practice it. And then you practice being in a tail, doing basic moves. It's just like baby steps. And then you finally get into it. So I think for me, it took about a year to learn all the parts and become a full-fledged mermaid, like mermaid status. What is that like working underwater all day long? It's amazing. (laughs) Our shows are about 30 minutes long. We can have up to four shows a day. And, you know, for me, being under the water, it's crystal clear. Your vision is kind of blurry, but you're aware of your surroundings. It's just very peaceful. You know, when I'm down there, I'm not thinking about anything else but just being right there in the moment and performing and knowing that on the other side of that glass, you can't see the people, but they're just, you know, so appreciative and they're, you know, I take for granted what I do and they're just never seen that before. So yeah, it's like my happy place. (laughs) We always say if you have a bad day, we get in the water and you always feel better after. Can you tell me a little bit about the shows themselves? I know that there are um, the, the Prince characters. Are you kind of doing a recreation of The Little Mermaid? Yes. Our one show is a take on Hans Christian Andersen's Little Mermaid. And, of course, all the kids can relate to that. I think everyone's pretty much knows the premise of that movie. So we have a sea witch. Um, we have The Little Mermaid. We have a turtle, um, the prince. And we have sisters who are mermaids. And it just kind of goes through, follows with the movie. And we have different shows throughout the year, but our other one that we mainly do is like it's a a little five-minute numbers, and it talks about the history, and we kind of go back and show clips on in the theater, and we perform underwater what they did throughout the years. But we also make up shows. We have Halloween shows. We have Christmas shows. Sometimes um, we'll create shows for, for special events. So it's kind of, there's a lot throughout the year. Does it ever get too cold to actually work? That's where the safety part comes in. We have enough time to warm up, and we never stay in there too long to get to that point. I mean, mentally, you may think, I can't do it, but <laughs> you can. It's, you know, and you're, you're moving, and you're performing, and you're staying so busy that half the time, you don't even feel it. What is it like for a pregnant mermaid? Well, when you are pregnant as a mermaid, you can't dive. We don't have any pregnant mermaids at this point. <laughs> but a lot of us do have families outside of being here as mermaids. And I think it's exciting when you have children and they can say, oh, my mom's a mermaid. And there are some actual mermaids 
that have had their children come and work. One of the former mermaids, her daughter came and they actually got to swim together. I know of a couple of them like that, so that's really neat to pass it down generations. Because I imagine some of the uh, former mermaids come back to the park. What are they like to talk with? It's amazing because it's nice to hear their take on it, and they always have great stories. I love listening to this stuff. It could be from, there's women that have worked in the, from here like in the 1950s and up until now, and you still feel bonded and you feel close with them. And for me, when I look at um, our legendary sirens, they still perform shows. She's 77 years old, the oldest performer. And yeah, and she was here when Elvis came to the park. She has some amazing stories. You just sit there and you just are like, ah. <laughs> So, no, it's great. It's just they laid the way for us. At the core, we all are here for the same reasons. And even though the show has changed, we have that bond that we're in the spring. We've experienced that. So that makes it unique for us. Well, I promised, John, that I wouldn't keep you for too long because I know you've got a lot of stuff to do. So I I really do. Yeah, (laughs) I do really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you. You also. It's a pleasure talking to you. All right, we are back, and we we're talking about the lure, though uh, they might not jump to mind in the U.S. as being kind of a common mythological creature. Mermaids are definitely part of popular culture. They show up occasionally in things like SpongeBob SquarePants, uh, I think, believe, voiced by Scarlett Johansson. They, of course, Splash was a big hit in the 1980s. I made mention of that before. And Ariel is one of the most popular Disney princesses that you can uh, possibly get. That was obviously based on the Hans Christian Andersen story, and you could also argue that Frozen owes a lot to Andersen as well. So, uh, Carol, what did you think about the other interpretation of the Andersen story, 1976's Mala Morskavia by Carol Kachnia? I really liked it. I, I am a sucker for that sort of late 60s into the 70s Czech New Wave stuff and even um sort of like late soviet fairy tale stuff so intriguing and stylized and abstract this one was interesting because i i just reread the little mermaid for the show and i had forgotten a lot of things about it the kachnya one follows the story very very closely it's uh, obviously much more faithful than the lore is although the lore is more faithful than you might think at first because it has all the sequins and the disco and all that kind of stuff going on This one, I was a little, I could see more how she fell in love with her prince because her prince was much nicer to her. The first thing he didn't, he didn't tell her that she was, would always be an animal to him. And then she sort of masochistically gives him a a pick made from her own scales. But this prince was a very classic medieval fairy tale prince. He was kind and helped her. He, she, he found her on the beach and gave her clothes he had a lot of dogs that seemed happy. That's always a good sign. He looked a lot like Alain Delon with like a Prince Valiant haircut. The tragedy in a way wasn't as poignant. And I did not have as much of a lump in my throat when she chooses to turn to sea foam because you can see why she does it. You can see her love and you can see in some ways that how he is worthy of that love. But one thing I did find interesting was that 
they added this other sea prince that she was supposed to marry for her father, the sea king, and then she would be the queen of the sea. And he was awful and pedantic. And mm. and it, so this one ends up being so much more about the sea king's failure to me that he, he didn't find a way to talk to his daughter out of doing this, that he didn't see that she was unhappy with the future he had charted out for her for the next 300 years. And that he hadn't learned, apparently, from his own failure, because it turns out that his wife left him for a fisherman. <laughs> and he had a secret statue to her in a grotto that everyone else thought was his window where he could see everything in, in the world. And so he is a very tragic character, because he obviously wants what's best for his daughter, but he's incapable of making it happen. And the next thing he knows, his daughter's run off with a prince. Uh, he sends her a dagger to kill him, and she does not. She turns into sea foam. And the other weird thing about, uh, well, the interesting thing to me about it is, is the hair. Because so often we think of mermaids as having like these long, was it Waterhouse who did all those fairy paintings? Like the late 18th century, the early 19th, uh, I'm sorry, the late 19th century, the early 20th century with all the long haired ladies. Anyway, you think about that with mermaids, but these people, they didn't have fishtails. They wore very, what I think of as like 1970s science fiction robes <laughs> yeah and their hair was like coral like they had all these sticks and i don't know what else like sea leaves in it and they were like these architectural structures on top of their heads and when she turns into a human she gets much more like regular mermaidy pretty lady hair so i really enjoyed i enjoyed the set design and that kind of thing and it was interesting i don't know they changed the ending even though it was very faithful, because it turns out in the Hans Christian Andersen story, which I had forgotten, his happy ending is she turns into sea foam, but then the daughters of the air rescue her, and in 300 years she can win a human soul and go to heaven after helping people out while they watch their children. Though I love that there's controversy around that ending, which is really kind of neat. I never knew that, that uh, people argue about that and that it's... Uh, even uh, P.L. Travers, the author of Mary Poppins, is just like, yeah, no, that really doesn't seem like uh, the right ending to it. And then even seeing like a page of the original manuscript out on Wikipedia where there's a big chunk that's crossed out. <laughs> <laughs> it really seems tacked on. <laughs> like it doesn't fit with the rest of the huh. story. <laughs> you know what's so funny about that, uh, that Czech version was um, it, it's such a fairy tale until that end, uh, I mean, we don't see it, but I mean, she slaughters the whole ship. If if I saw that right or interpreted that right, mm-hmm. um, and, and then she gives up, you know, of course, because she sees the prince uh, and you know wants him to be happy. But I will say, I uh, I had no expectations at all watching uh, this version. Um, I you put it in the Dropbox. I watched it. To be fair, I or I didn't know that it was Czech. At first, uh, because I didn't look it up, um, clearly it was foreign language, didn't know which language. And watching it, I thought for a long time, I thought it was Italian and it just felt like a <laughs> like Little Mermaid by way of Pasolini for a bit, <laughs> which saying that out loud, I kind of wish he made a version of the Little Mermaid, <laughs> you know, felt very much like when he did Canterbury Tales and some of that. Um, but no, it, I mean, it's it was fine. I enjoyed it um it's i'll be honest it's not something i'm gonna necessarily watch again anytime soon but i'm glad i've i saw it i mean it is uh an interesting version um although i will say it did make me feel stupid for the first 20 minutes or so because 
I'm watching it and, and um, you know, that first scene, I think, you know, after the credits, they're playing with some pearls on the ground. And I thought it was them on land uh, with their legs playing with pearls. And it, it took me a while to get on its wavelength to know that they were under the ocean. <laughs> Again, that's what I get for going into a movie cold. But um, no, it, it, I mean, it's interesting. I, I appreciate it. But like I said, it's uh, I don't think it, it uh, you know, uh, breaks the mold in any way i think it's a pretty faithful telling it made me think a little bit of the 1980s hard to be a god for some reason and i'm not sure why i guess i can see that you know what's funny is because as we were talking you're talking about those outfits i was like what well, kind of reminds me of on the silver globe so maybe there's that kind of weird sci-fi kind of out of time thing going on with those outfits because i was thinking of those uh, the outfits that they wear when they first get to the other planet uh, on, on the Silver Globe. So, and yeah, I can see the 80s version of Hard to Be a God fitting in right there as well. So I could see the um, the people of Space 1999 visiting that planet and finding those young women playing with pearls on the ground. You know, this was a, a musical as well as, as the lore was. And really, musicals about mermaids have gone back to almost as soon as these stories have been written, because there's the little mermaid and we, of course we know the Disney version of the little mermaid, but there've been, you know, operas, Dvorak uh, wrote an opera in 1901 about it, uh, uh, based on the little mermaid. Um, There's also the story Undine or Undine, which is, came out about 20 some years before the little mermaid came out. Uh, was a, uh, was it, it was a German story and as early as, what is it, 1814, they're doing an opera based on this. So even before the Little Mermaid book was written or came out, there's already an opera based on Undine. So it's just like, yeah, this is it's pretty popular to let's take these mermaid stories and make operas out of them. And then, of course, different filmic versions like crazy. I mean, Carol, you were saying right before we recorded, how early was the Undine uh, film version? 1916. 1916. So, and then Little yeah, Mermaid. Yeah, oh yeah, that would be pretty pretty amazing. And then Little Mermaid goes back to well, there were there were versions that where Shirley Temple was doing stuff in 1960s and all the way back to the 50s with this one. Yeah, it was like an 1830 story. So I bet there were even stage plays. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised because it's got to be pretty pretty easy to stage this because once you're out of the water it's the uh <laughs> can you talk a little bit about because i've not read the hans christian anderson story from what i remember it's when she's on land she can't speak and when she walks it's like she's walking on broken glass am i remember that correctly well the version i just read uh the witch literally cuts out her tongue oh wow okay <laughs> And then when she walks on land, she feels a pain as if she were stepping on knives. So I remember that part correctly. I just didn't remember yeah. uh, that divine. They, they pretty it up, I think, a little bit, where she just loses her voice as opposed to the witches. The witch also mocks her and tells her, this is not going to work out for you. You're, you're doing a foolish thing, but okay. And gives her three chances because three is the magic number. But Yes, it is. I've also, and this is a shocker, I've never seen the Disney version of The Little Mermaid. I don't imagine that she turns to seafoam at the end of it. 
<laughs> As someone who's seen it multiple times, you know, because I dated a lot of women who love it. Uh, no, she does not. <laughs> but does she get her tongue cut out? No, she does not get her tongue cut out either. No, it gets taken mystically through magic. <laughs> Singing versions of mermaids, not too out of the realm of possibility that these stories were Dutch and German. Also kind of interesting that we're here we are talking about Polish mermaids. And I guess that it's just uh, that we're doing it all in 2015 when this movie came out. It's kind of uh, uh, foreign to us, but... I mean, it's amazing that there's such a long history of these things. Not trying to justify the existence of the lore. I just think it 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 plays into some things that have been going on for a long time, and it's just interesting that a lot of people are like, "Oh, wow, this this movie! I can't believe it!" But it's neat to know that some of these things have been going on for over a hundred years. Yeah, right. and then if you take it with the sirens, so much longer. Right. Yeah. Well, didn't they have? Um was it discovery or history channel that had a, like the, some mermaid documentary and documentary in quotations, um, <laughs> that they, they found the truth of real murder people or there was something like that a few years ago. I, I don't know if anybody else remembers that. No, but that sounds very entertaining. I, I ne- never watched it. Cause I don't, you know, I don't buy into history or discoveries bullshit anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least the modern day, uh, versions of those channels. Yeah, I've heard people say that it's based on things like manatees or misseeing cetaceans, but I think that's sort of failing to see the point about them, which I think isn't really their reality, but, you know, the kinds of things that we've been talking about with regard to this movie, not not what physical being you might see when you're a drunk sailor and (laughs) think is a (laughs) mermaid. David, I'm not going to say that they're ancient aliens, but um, they are. Oh, okay. It's it's not sea foam. It's alien goo. Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> ectoplasm. ectoplasm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Jinx. Well, well, that just makes it less sexy. <laughs> or, or more, depending on you. Well, guys, thanks so much for coming on and talking about the lore. Carol, what is the good word at the cultural gutter these days? We are ginning up for the next gutterthon, and we have plans for a second cultural gutter book which i have started work on now and will hopefully be out in late 2017 or early 2018 i realized i wrote a story about mermaids and i am going to promote it if that's okay with you oh feel free uh it was published in fox spirit books anthology carnival noir edited by kate laity and you can read my story the mermaid illusion in there and for folks who don't know what is a gutterthon the Gutterthon is a fundraiser we do every year so that we can pay our editors um, and our visiting writers, our guest stars, because they deserve to be paid for their work. And David, what's been keeping you busy lately? Uh, toiling away at being a social worker, uh, or uh, I, you'll hear me, you can hear me from time to time on the Binge Watchers podcast. Um, we'll be recording an episode tomorrow night, so keep an eye out for that soon. All right. Well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, and find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.